Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 23 and finish the chapter. I know it's really a miracle. We're going to have finished chapter 5, which is arguably one of the, um, has an intense section, which we're going to get to this morning, but we're going to somehow manage to get through Ephesians 5 in two sermons. I know, it's really amazing. Wives, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might, would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. There was a mild-mannered man who was reading a self-help book on being assertive. And he came home one day and stormed through the doors, and he thought he would take this to home and practice it. And he pointed his finger at his wife and said, from now on, I'm the boss around here, and what I say goes. He said, I want a four-course meal for dinner, and after dinner, I want you to draw my bath. And guess who is going to dress me and comb my hair after my bath? The wife looks at him in the eye and says, the mortician. I want to remind us all that we are talking about walking out the gospel. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians 4, verse 1 and 2. This has set up the context in which we've been looking at for the last several weeks. Now we get to Paul sort of shifts his mind toward earthly relationships. We talked last time when I preached and taught on Ephesians about different forms of walking in the light, walking in love, and now we get to walk out this calling worthily in our earthly relationships, first with our husbands and wives, our spouses, and then next chapter, next week, Lord willing, we are going to look at our earthly relationships between um, parents and children. Now, obviously, our passage is about marriage, and sadly, to many that do not look at these verses through the biblical lens of it being God's Word, it causes some sort of confusion and bitterness, sometimes even tension and resentment. While I could certainly spend weeks building up a foundation of marriage and, and addressing biblical roles and responsibility in the way God created us, I want to continue. I really do want to continue on in Ephesians at this general pace we've been, we've been going at. So uh, I had planned to spend a whole week on just marriage and building this up and then looking specifically at the verses. But I'm going to combine them this morning and we're going to very quickly and briefly kind of encapsulate the basic relationship between a man and his wife that is found in the Word of God. So there's going to be six of these if you're taking notes and you want to. Number one, these are the basic principles. Number one, man was created first. Now, I know this may sound really nitpicky, so what, okay? But I promise you it's in the Word of God for a reason. Every word is profitable, right? So let's look at Scripture, and you don't have to follow along and flip with me. I'm going to flip through a bunch of Scriptures this morning. If you want to keep up, great, or you can write them down and look at them yourself later. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9 says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. 
For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. 1 Timothy 2, verse 13 says something similar, that man was created first. And I'm going to actually turn to Genesis chapter 2. If you want to put a marker in Ephesians, I'm going to be in Genesis quite a bit. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, that's Yahweh Elohim, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to the every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. Okay? Now this is important in this context. The first command was given to Adam. It wasn't given to Adam and Eve both. God said, I want you to go into the garden, intend it, cultivate it, keep it, and do not touch that tree. Don't touch it. As Adam, as, as the animals came to him and Adam named them, a lot of people say that, you know, we make jokes about Eve being the smart enough one to name them all or being creative. All of those little jokes, if you've ever seen them, she wasn't even there according to Scripture. Adam named the animals, and in that process, God is pointing a picture out and saying, Adam had nobody. These animals have mates, they have someone to call a partner, but something was missing. And it is for that reason, number two, that woman was, and here's three things, three sub-points, woman was created secondly. Now, created, being created secondly does not mean that Eve was an afterthought. Women, you are not an afterthought of God. In the same way that the cross of Christ was not an afterthought of God. Just because you're created after does not mean that he did not think about it and perfectly plan it out. There is a picture here, and this is why it's important. This is why this process of Adam first, Eve second really plays in. We're going to tie it all into Ephesians in a little bit. The second point of this second one is that she was created to be a suitable helpmate. Now, suitable suggests, I, I read one definition that said, it's something that is um, like the other side, it's, it completes a polar polarity. And they use the example of how the North Pole must have ultimately a South Pole. That's what suitable means. It's a completion of the other part. And I wish there wasn't a need for me to explain this, but unfortunately in this day and age, helper, help, helpmate, and, and there's two, there's two um, sort of extremes here, if you will. Men, a helper is not your slave. It's not for you to kick up your feet and tell her what to do and that you can't do anything for yourself. The word is helper, not slave. Now, on the other hand, particularly ladies... Helper, helpmate, is not derogatory, okay? And we sort of have this idea that, oh, well, a helper is just a lower-class citizen, right? Well, Adam needed some assistance, right? No, not at all. And in fact, if you view helpmate in that way, if you view your role as a wife, as a sort of second-tier citizen, then I'm going to say something real bold here, catch this, you have the wrong view of God. Because 16 of the 21 times that this word help is used in the Hebrew New Testament is used describing God. Okay? Let me give you an example. I lift up my eyes into the hills from where my... Okay? It's not a derogatory word. Lastly, woman was created out of man. Genesis 2, verses 20 through 20. Three, the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable. We read that. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. The important part here is that God did not start from 
scratch. Okay? God created Adam from the dust of the earth. Couldn't he have just done it again? Get a different pile of mud, say, oh, well, let's just put this one together and see what happens. There is a reason. Again, I want us to zoom out. We're talking uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to get there and tie it all together. But there's a big reason, and this is such, it's such good material, and I wish we could really spend more time on it, but I want you just to get the basics. God specifically took Eve from the side of Adam, which is going to display a picture of the church being created and being formed out of Jesus Christ, Okay. There's something so much more than just saying, well, this is, this is kind of annoying. What, is, what does this mean? Why is Adam created first? And then he, doesn't, he just has to take me from Adam? He can't make me perfect the first time like he did? No. See, God had a master plan, and he was showing us something much bigger than just a great creation account that we have in Genesis chapter 2. He used existing bone to show that Adam and Eve were of the same substance, that she was made essentially of the same stuff, that she was a bearer of the same image of God that Adam was. He didn't get the good mud, and she got the bad mud. She got taken from the very same image, and them together fully represented it. Now thirdly, third point about marriage in general, man and women, man and woman, are equal before God. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Who knows the rest of it? Male, female, he created them. God created man, humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Together, he created them in the image of God. Both woman and man are created together in the image of God. Not one is superior than the other. Galatians chapter 3.28 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, here's an interesting one for you. Let me turn there quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12 says, In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Here's the order. God, man, woman, from man. And now man also must be coming from woman. That way they will be preserved through childbirth. These verses all tying together if you care about that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay? I want, I want us to know that the Bible is really clear about men and women being created equal, even though the world is not clear on this. Men and women are both equal in value, but that does not mean that they were designed to do the same things. In other words, they were intentionally created with different roles and functions. Now, this shouldn't even be controversial. And yet, here we are. Number four, together, as one flesh, they represent and reflect the image of God. Now, I've already, we already read one of these verses, or I quoted it. I'm going to back up to Genesis 1, 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This is the whole trinity of, of God. The Holy Spirit was brooding over the surface of the deep. Jesus was there, and I believe, personally, I believe Jesus was the one walking in the garden with Adam and Eve before the fall. God the Father being there and being creator God. Let us, this is them together, make man in our image, reflecting the fullness of Yahweh God according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and all over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female, as we said. He created them. Together they represent, quote, our image. Genesis 1.26. Okay? Author Alan Ross said it this way, They both had the same nature, but what man lacked, 
she supplied. The culmination was one flesh, the complete unity of man and woman in marriage. Number five, marriage was instituted by God. Genesis 2.24 is the verse where a for this reason, this is really why a woman was created from man, bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. The next verse says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Where did we just see that verse? In Ephesians chapter 5. Why do you think Paul, when writing about marriage, references Genesis chapter 2, the creation of man and woman? The institute of marriage. Because there was always a bigger picture of something going on. We're going to get to that. That's your teaser. Now, it's because of this fact that God created marriage, not the Pope, not the president, not your governor, not some little form you get from the courthouse. Go be legally married. Yes, absolutely. Follow the laws of the land, right? That said, we have borrowed, governments have borrowed this idea, this institute of marriage from God's Word. He's the one that brought Adam and Eve together to become one flesh. You say, well, this is how it's always been. This is cultural. This, you can go anywhere around the world and there's people married. No, not necessarily. There are some places where you just get to pick and choose different people of, depending on how you feel or what day of the week it is. But God had a different plan. And it's because of this fact that God created marriage, He invented it, that divorce is essentially never an option. Malachi 2.16 says, God hates divorce. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 say, the married woman is bound by law to her husband while she is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress through, though she is joined to another man. 1 Corinthians 7.39 similarly talks about this bond being forever. Matthew 19, Jesus himself talks about it. You are not free to divorce. And so they question him. Well, why did they allow? Why did you allow in the prophets? Because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, I'm sorry. Why is any of this important? We're getting heavy, aren't we? What's the meaning of marriage? Can we just get to the point? Well, sorry to break it to all of you. Marriage has nothing to do with finding your soulmate. It has nothing to do with your happiness. It has nothing to do with box to check on your W-4. It has nothing to do with having a fancy and rememberable party. It has nothing to do with tradition, your passion, or any hundred other things. It has everything to do with Christ and about Christ being finally wed to his bride. That leads us to number six. Number six, marriage is symbolic of Christ. In the church. And we see that in our passage, namely in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, and we'll get there. But I want to very quickly just, our last verse before we really start to focus in on Ephesians, point you to Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 9. This is what we have to look forward to in Christ Jesus. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had spoken one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. See, the first Adam was alone. The last Adam was already alone. Christ Jesus. And in the same way that Eve was made to complete the first Adam, 
the church was created to complete the last Adam. Spiritual ears now. One day, we are going to share in the same image of Christ Jesus. That sounds illegal, doesn't it? Almost blasphemous, but it's not. First Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we can behold it. We can see it. We can, we can ascertain a, a some amount of the glory of God. We're being transformed into the same image. That's the image of Christ. We are actually being transformed into the very image of Christ. The verse continues, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So I'll say it again. One day we're going to share in the very image of Christ. Just as a bride prepares herself for her wedding day, hair, nails, makeup, dress, dress again, dress again, dress again, ate something too big, dress again. I found out something. My wife didn't do this. She wasn't particularly, or maybe you did. I shouldn't speak for you. I don't think she did this. I found out recently that women get their hair practiced before their wedding day. Mind-blowing. Never in my life did I realize that women would go to a salon, fix up their hair, and then have an opportunity to decide whether or not they liked it for their actual wedding day. Here we are, you know, in 2020, and we want to look perfect for our wedding day, don't we? The church being transformed from glory to glory. Put on your makeup. Get your nails done. Find that dress. Spiritually speaking, you want to look good, don't you? By the help of the Holy Spirit, we can do that. Now, the two becoming one flesh is it's more than just the church being invited to a wedding feast, you know, getting, getting to go to heaven. That's what we think, right? Oh, well, we get to go to heaven. We get to sit with Jesus at the table and dine with Him. But you see, it's that believers before creation, before the foundations of the world, were planned to unite with Christ and fill that void, to complete Him. Talk about a love story. I know you've had to watch those or got to watch those, depending on which side of it you fall on, Hallmark films. You know the ones where you can totally pull out the plot of the movie in the opening scene? Oh, but Jesus. Jesus, he's been looking for his lover for thousands of years. You know, it was love at first sight. Long walks in the cool garden. How romantic. But then his lover, she started looking at another man. You know, sin. Jesus, heartbroken. But he knew there was a way to win her heart. And that was to come to earth and sacrifice himself. And so there was that day that the church became betrothed to his lover, Christ Jesus. And there he is in heaven, building an everlasting dream home for his wife while she's getting ready for that big day. You see, marriage is less about you, and it's more about completing Christ. God invented the institute of marriage for his own son, Jesus. The fact that we are married and we're given in marriage while here on earth only has to do with the simple fact that God desires us to more fully understand his future plans and purposes for the church. God didn't invent marriage for your pleasure. He invented it for his son. And so, the next time that you or someone you know entertains the idea of divorce, I challenge you to stop and consider what marriage is for. To look at Christ Jesus, to consider what the covenant is all about. 
Consider all those times you missed the mark, and yet, He's still betrothed to you and still wants you. And He's coming to marry you, carry you off in your bridal gown of glory. Now, that's part one. It could have easily been two or three sermons. Nonetheless, it's the bare minimum foundation that I wanted to lay before we look more closely at Ephesians. Verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, in this text, the wife's primary instruction, I'm not saying her primary purpose in this text, listen carefully, her primary instruction is to submit to her husband. The word is a military term. It's hupotasso. It's to willingly put yourself under another person. It's used in military terms to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In non-military use, it's a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, or assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Obedience, submission. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Perhaps you may find it more helpful if I explain what submission is not and what it is. First, submission is not slavery. It's not beckoning at every command and being whipped to death as a husband just gets to make decisions. Okay? Submission is not a matter of value, talents, or intelligence. I've met a whole lot of people that are in marriages. One might even say that my wife is a whole lot smarter than I am. She's sitting on the front row, so I, I got to say that. It's not a matter of value and talents. My wife is a wonderfully talented individual, as you all know. I've met a whole bunch of really dumb guys out there that are really married up, right? Yet, God's word is clear. Submit. Submission is not to all men. Wives, submit to your own husband. Okay? And it's not toward every request. There are men that certainly do things outside of the Christian way of living, and they would ask a wife to do something that goes against the word of God or against their conscience and causes them to sin. Clearly, you do not submit to that. God's word is above the man's actions and requests. What submission is? Firstly, it is willful. It is a willingness to put yourself under your husband. It is, second, commanded by God. Not only is it commanded by God, it is actually for his glory. We're going to get to that in a minute. You probably already know where that's coming from. It is actually for God's glory. It's not to make your husband feel good about himself. It's even to be toward the unbeliever. And I just read the passage out of 1 Peter 3, so that you may win him over without a word by your own actions. There, now, I want you to know here, there are no qualifications for submission. It doesn't say a husband's got to, you know, read his Bible this many times a day. He's got to take care of you and make this much money and, and do your nails and pay for your salon and do all this stuff. He's got to be, rub your feet this many times a week. Then you submit to him. No, it says submit. Even if they're not following Christ Jesus and looking like him. Submission, lastly, and probably most difficult, is that the end of verse 24 says, it's in everything. See, the problem with this sort of emergent, 
emergency time sacrifice of what we often think of men and women coming together. And when there's a disagreement, okay, well, biblical submission means, well, I guess it's my husband, he's the head, I just got to surrender to him. Is that it fails to meet the scriptural standards. It doesn't say submit when there's conflict. I know this is uncomfortable. It says submit in everything. Now, I also want you to know on the flip side, husbands must love 24-7. Their love isn't temporary or only when there's conflict or only when there's a difficult time must they love. But in the same way, the Bible says that wives are to be subject to their husbands. Now, why should you submit to your husband? Why? Well, verse 23 and 24 tells us, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. The husband is the head, 1 Corinthians eleven three. if you want to look at that a little bit more. No matter what society may say or what our culture tells us, this is a statement of fact in the word of God. And it's not local to Ephesus, as some would try and argue. It's important for each of us to recognize that this has to do with God's design, Genesis chapter 2, not some wild and archaic idea from a misogynistic apostle. This is where the whole point of woman being created out of man comes into play. He's the head. Don't take your complaints to me. I don't want them. Take them up with God. They're his words. He wrote them. Why should you submit to your husband? Because, listen to this, a body that does not submit to the head is either spastic or paralyzed. Spiritually dysfunctional. See, this concept wasn't just invented in the New Testament by Paul. He didn't, yeah, sure, he, he brought it out and expounded on it here and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but all the way back in the garden after Eve was deceived, God in his rebuke toward her stated, your desire will be for your husband, but what? He will rule over you. Meaning, there has always been a temptation for the wife to usurp her husband's headship. Men, there will always be the temptation for your wife to usurp your headship. And in fact, that's what Adam's punishment really was about. You know how sin entered through one man, Adam? Sin didn't enter through Eve, even though she took of the fruit first, didn't she? Why did it come through man? He was responsible as the head. You know, Adam was right there when the serpent went all jungle book into her eyes. Eat of the fruit. But her sin was not disobedience. The command was given to Adam. Her sin was that she was deceived. 1 Timothy 2.14, and she fell into transgression. See, but it was Adam that disobeyed God. It was Adam that shrunk back in cowardice when Eve was eating of the fruit and he listened to his wife above God's word. Point is, God created an Adam first to lead woman. And we see this outlined and thwarted all the way back in the very first couple. God's intent and purpose was broken then and is largely continues to be ignored today. Verse 25, husbands, you're on the hot seat. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. One might think that if wives are instructed to submit, that husbands would be commanded to lead, but that is not the case. The husband's primary instruction, again, this context, this verse passage, husband's primary instruction here is to 
love the wife. You see, proper headship is not about your wife knowing that you are in charge. It's about your wife knowing you love her. And how should husbands show this love? Well, look at the example set before us. Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to... Just because your wife is conveniently better at cooking and cleaning and doing all of these other things, right, does not entitle you to sit back and receive and receive and receive and receive. Oh, well, she's better at that. She likes it. Consider Jesus, the Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, coming to earth and washing the feet of those that shouldn't even be looking at Him. That's God Almighty in flesh. And here He was on His knees. That's love. Yet that very verse we just started in Mark continues. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What does perfect love look like? No greater love than this. That a man would lay down his own life. Being willing to lay down your life. That's what Christ did for his bride. He set everything aside. His authority, his power, all his wealth in heaven, all of it. So that he could come down, catch this, that she would have a better future. This is where the provision of the husband comes into place in biblical standards. The example set before us is that the husband is going away to prepare something much better for us. Sacrifice. Self-sacrifice and servanthood. That's love. Verse 28. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. You know, this analogy used to be hard for me to understand. Love Brittany as my own body. I don't even love my own body. I've looked at myself in the mirror recent enough to know that it doesn't look good. What on earth does this analogy mean? Well, I think the key really is in the next verse. And for that verse, as I said, we've already read it once in Genesis chapter 2, but I'm going to go to Genesis 2 and read it in context because that's the quote it comes from. That is, verse 31 of Ephesians 5 comes from Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read it there, starting in verse 22. It says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The moment that a child grows up, walks out from under the head of household of his father, he's joined into his wife, and similarly the wife, when she comes out from underneath that headship, guess what? They don't just marry and, you know, two become a better-looking couple. and They become one, one entity. En- en- entity, thank you. <laughs> Brian's listening. He was the first one I heard. Thank you, Brian. I owe you. You get one free pronunciation later. (laughs) Husbands, take care of your wife. After all, she's your flesh. One plus one equals one. 100% plus 100% in God's economy equals 100% here. And I started to understand this as I've become as I've been married a little bit longer now and looking at Scripture, Louis, matey's your flesh. Watch over it. In the same way that, you know, you stub a toe on the dresser in the middle of the night, you want to amputate your legs because you're fed up with them, that's your flesh. In the same way that your hands make you stumble and fumble and you do something wrong, you don't mutilate your flesh, your wife is your flesh. She's a part of you. Do not amputate it. Don't scar it and mar it. Don't hurt it. Take care of it. Take care of your body. It's your very own. 
verse 32, Ephesians chapter 5 says, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This mystery, what does mystery mean? Well, it was hidden. In Moses' day, they didn't understand the purpose of marriage. They were married. It was also the reason that some of them were divorced is because, again, on the flip side, they didn't understand this mystery. Now, Paul also, I want you to understand here and infer from this what is clear. He said, this mystery, it's been hidden for a long time, meaning Paul didn't just hunt around for some useful analogy. Oh, well, it's kind of like, well, Christ, how Christ loves us. Nope. This was the actual plan of marriage from the get-go. It was designed by God to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, in the fine print, we can also infer something incredibly relevant to today's culture. It's in this unity between husband and wife that the stamp of God's image reflects most clearly to the world. And this is why it is so important to have the proper understanding of what male and female, two sexes, biologically, genders, the same thing, why they're distinct. Because if you, if you ruin the, the understanding, if you water down the significance of your birth sex, then you have distorted and marred the very picture of Christ in the church. Satan's on a wild attack of destroying and tearing down marriage in the church. It's bad enough that divorce is pretty much the same inside the church and outside of the church. Last statistic I saw actually had church members getting divorced more often, and I'll tell you why that statistic, wow, I'm having trouble this morning, why that statistic is significant. It's because the world is no longer getting married. They've decided, well, it's just too difficult, people divorce, and I'm going to lose a lot of my money, so we'll just live together. So it's not that people in the church are necessarily getting divorced more than they once were, it's that the world tends to not be going into that covenant of marriage any longer. Truth is, the church is getting divorced just as much. Satan's been trying to distort. He's trying to mar the very plan of God to come back for his bride. The same way that marriage is consummated that wedding night, Satan even begins with couples, teenagers, high school, even middle school. Something that should be reserved for two, flat, two becoming one flesh is now normalized. Well, do this. Put your flesh out there with one person. Oh, well, that was a bad experience. Try again with this person. By the time they're in high school and college, sometimes they can't even count how many people they've been with, how many different fleshes they've become one with and ripped apart again and again and again and again and again. Brittany and I were engaged. We are engaged far too long. We dated about 11 months, is that right? Engaged 13. Let me tell you something. For those of you that have kids or grandkids that aren't married yet, my recommendation in this day and age and the societal pressures, you have an engagement just long enough to plan the wedding, that's it. So let me tell you what happens. I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. I was tempted. I've been in relationships, done things that I shouldn't have done with other people. I have saving sex for my marriage night. You know what? Satan will do everything he can to get you to have sex outside the confines of marriage because it distorts the picture of Christ's love for the church. And I thought, oh, fine, when I get engaged, oh, it'll be real easy to wait. I was like, we're almost there, right? Now I got her around my finger. She, I literally got a ring to prove it. She's going to wait for me. We're going to wait. It's going to be great. And you know what? I started to have the temptation 
the Lord's coming back. So I started to pray this prayer, Lord, please don't come back. Because <laughs> that's all I could think about as a hormonal high school college student. <laughs> Lord, don't come back yet. Wait another year. <laughs> I thought it would be easy to wait. But what happened when I asked Brittany to marry me, something happened different in my mind. I was emotionally married to her but I was not yet supposed to be and was not physically, she was not mine. And so Satan ramped up his attack even more. He said, I'm going to distort and ruin. I want to do everything I can to tempt and ruin his perfect picture of what consummation in love is supposed to be. And you know what happens after you get married? Satan flips the script. Okay, they're intimate. They have passionate love. Now I'm going to do everything in my power to keep them from being intimate. Why? Because it's that bond of two becoming one flesh. That's what holds us together. And when you're depriving each other of that, when you sort of have resentment about something you've done in the past and you sort of don't put yourself out there for your spouse in a way that is pleasing what you're doing is marring that very picture of Christ's love for his church and his bride. So I ask again, what's the meaning of marriage? Well, it, the world would see Christ's love for her through the way that we treat our spouses. How will the world know that Jesus loves them? Well, one way is through the way that you love your wife, through the way that you respect your husband. See, marriage has never been about happiness. If happiness was your primary goal, then you're tempted to get a divorce as soon as happiness seems to wane. If love is your primary goal, then guess what? You want to dump your spouse as soon as they seem to be less attentive. But if you marry for the glory of God, for His model of love and commitment to children, to reveal His witness to the world, divorce will simply never make sense. That's because the covenant of marriage gloriously reveals the very image of God. It's a signpost pointing to heaven that God loves the world and desires her. So in conclusion, let us consider three things from this passage. A husband should be able to comprehend proper submission to Christ by the way that his wife submits to him. A husband should be able to comprehend proper submission to Christ by the way that his wife submits to him. On the reverse of that, a wife should be able to comprehend the magnitude of God's perfect love for her by the way that the husband loves his wife. Lastly, the world should be able to comprehend the magnitude of God's love for them by the way that we Christians treat our spouses. I know there are husbands that aren't living like Christ in homes, even in this church. Ladies, obey God first and foremost, but in your submission to Christ, and as you seek to please Him, trust Him with the results of your marriage. May you fulfill Scripture that you would win Him over, 1 Peter chapter 3. And even if your marriage is not saved, you will at least have saved your integrity, and your spouse will never be able to take that away from you, that you did the right thing before God Almighty. I know on the flip side that there are wives that are not submitted to their husbands as we are to be to Christ. Gentlemen, obey God first and foremost. Love your wives despite her, her shortcomings. Don't wait for her to make the first move. Love your wife and be the head. Lead by example. Be the first to obey God's command here in Scripture. I promise you, when you do that, she will find you more attractive. Maybe you're single, you're divorced, or whatever. And you're thinking, well, this just isn't a message for me. Well, I want to remind you that the greatest wedding feast is yet to come. And it's going to be all about you and Christ coming together. I pray each and every one of us here will submit ourselves to Christ Jesus in everything because that is a supreme importance. Let us commit to actually trusting Christ as the head to lead us 
you know, in the day-to-day things. Not just on Sunday mornings. You have a special and significant opportunity if you're single to be more readily able to show the world what proper submission and indirectly Christ's love is all about. See, Paul talks about this even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, if you are, I wish that you would all remain like me. Because in other words, there's a special blessing around it that you could do things in ministry that others can't do in their marriage. He's not asking for people to get divorced and go single. He's saying remain as you are. But if you're single, he said, it's a beautiful picture and you have an opportunity to do things that others cannot. Let's pray this morning. Father God, I thank you for your son. I thank you that in the middle of all our sickness and disease and sin, you gave yourself up for us. You committed to marriage with us. Father, I thank you for that betrothal. That we look forward to that day as you're preparing for us that place. Lord, may we be that bride that's ready even as the virgins are preparing their oil lamps. The day is drawing near. Lord, I pray that we would continue to beautify ourselves through the help of your Holy Spirit. That the world around us would see what it means to be a Christian husband, to be a Christian wife. Help us to love our wives. Help us to respect and submit to our husbands that the world would be pointed to Christ Jesus. Lord, and I pray for the hurts and pains of past, whether it be divorce, separation, those that are lonely and single. Father, that you would take away those hurts and pains. You would fill those voids with your love and your grace and your truth. Lord, that time on earth is short and we look forward to that great marriage feast where we get to gaze upon your glory and we are transformed into the perfect glory and image of Christ Jesus himself. Lord, I thank you for this time together in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we leave from here. Amen.